gifts is the secret to joy in Advent, then the shepherding deacons yesterday were off the charts. They gathered uh, for their little Christmas bash, and there were presents flying all over the place. So if you ever get asked to be a shepherding deacon, good move. You get lots of gifts because that's the secret of life, right? Get lots of gifts. So I'll be home for Christmas is the theme of our Advent journey, and we have been reflecting upon the home uh, of our lives and the home of the life of Christ, and we are wondering about how we connect the dots when we think about uh, the great gift of home that plays itself out in our lives each and every day. So to that end, we uh, turn to a story in uh, John's Gospel, the 12th chapter, about Jesus visiting a particular home. Hear the word of God. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. And they gave a dinner for him, and Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those at table with him. And Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped them with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who was about to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He kept the common purse and used to steal what was put into it. And Jesus said, leave her alone. She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. We join with those angels of long ago to sing glory and are grateful that you meet us here in these humble places to once again discover who you are and whose we are. Allow these words to point to this word read and to the word made flesh in Jesus the Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Years ago, while visiting my Kansas brother, it was decided that we would take a drive to Abilene, Kansas, and visit the childhood home of Dwight D. Eisenhower. Dwight D. Eisenhower, the 34th President of the United States and the Supreme Commander of the Allied Expeditionary Forces in Europe during World War II. Dwight D. Eisenhower, the architect of D-Day and the visionary behind the U.S. interstate highway system arguably one of the most pivotal American figures of the 20th century. Thankfully, they have done a wonderful job preserving the home of the former president and general, all 1,300 square feet of it. The quintessential Midwestern home, two-story wood frame house, hip roof, central chimney, porch on the front, parlor, dining room, and kitchen on the first floor, and on the second floor, three bedrooms for mom, dad, and their six sons, 1,300 square feet. Parents and grandparents, you can do the math with your children and grandchildren as compared to your own dwelling today. 
Such was Dwight D. Eisenhower's childhood home before he packed off for West Point and to save Western civilization. The truth is this home bears no remarkability except that it was once lived in by a boy who would become president and a general. Had we been trotting on our horses through Abilene back at the turn of last century and needed water for our horses, we would have found greeting us at the door a railroad mechanic and his wife doing their best to control the six young boys who fought more than they played. We would have sipped our lemonade and said thank you and been on our way without giving any more thought to where we had been. You just never know whose presence you're in and where you're standing. Today, 100 years later, they give tours of the 1,300 square feet. In one of my first visits to Honduras some 15 years ago, I spent my days walking through the town where we were, where we were staying with a medical team seeking to address medical issues of the townsfolk, mostly children, who were at risk of succumbing to childhood illnesses over which you and I as parents lost little sleep. At every humble hut, we were welcomed warmly by mom, dad, and the children while the doctors performed and nurses performed their exams. Being a Presbyterian pastor and thus of no earthly use, I spent most of my time visiting with these families through the help of an interpreter and receiving the tours of each home proudly led by the matriarch. These tours that would last all of 45 seconds or so, which is all you needed to cover the 200 square feet divided into two, maybe three rooms by nothing more than thin curtains. Two or three rooms meant to house five, seven, sometimes 10 people. After a day of visiting these Honduran homes, I confessed that they all kind of seemed to run together, each the same in what they lacked in comparison to what I had back home, each remarkable only in its vulnerability to the elements. Yet one home did stick in my mind, no different in construction, mud stick and a scrap metal roof, makeshift wood-burning oven inside, sans ventilation, curtains drawn, but in my tour, a peek around the corner into one five-by-seven cubby revealed a rag-and-rope bed covered with torn and holy blankets and on it lying a newborn baby, no more than three weeks old, a baby sleeping, still and quiet as a mouse, a baby no different than I once was, as you once were, as Jesus once was in that little manger, a precious little baby, as human and as holy as they come. It takes a baby, I suppose, to give us pause. It takes a baby to make us forget for a moment where we are. It takes a baby to strip away the surroundings and to cut to the chase that here before me is a living and breathing being, and that's all it takes for this place to be sacred. This is a holy hovel because there is some little thing here breathing and living, and we must stop what we're doing and pay attention. 
Luis Cordero will tell you that, the New York City barber on his way to work one morning passing by the dumpster that he's passed by for years, a dumpster over where the skateboarders skate. But this particular morning, there's a sound he's never heard before, a, a sound coming from the dumpster, a, a sound strange enough to cause him to investigate. Up he lifts the lid, aside he moves the bags of garbage only to find this bundle of something making a noise. Gently, he grasps the bundle, and the bundle is a baby. The bundle is a baby, swaddled in garbage. And he sends the skateboarders to the police station down the street while he calls 911, and the little baby is saved. Never has there been a more holy dumpster. And the nurses say to Louise, you get to name her, Louise. You found her, you name her. Christina, he said. Let's name her Christina. Luke is the only gospel writer to locate for us the place and surroundings of Jesus' birth. Without Luke, we wouldn't have most of our Christmas story, shepherds, glory-singing angels, and a babe lying in a manger, a babe lying in a feed trough, a babe lying in the least of all places. Never has there been a more holy feed trough, never a more sacred stable, because there is this living, breathing being that draws us away from the breath of the animals to see and to feel the breath of angels. It's a baby. It's a breathing, living baby, and that's all that matters. If God can show up here, God can show up anywhere, or Luke would suggest to us. But unlike presidents and generals, we have no historic registered home to visit and tour, do we? No remains of Jesus' birthplace and childhood home. No effort on the part of the gospel writers to locate it on Google Maps. Because when Jesus comes to earth, Jesus comes to earth. Jesus comes to the whole earth. When Jesus makes his home in this world, he makes this world his home. He makes holy not just a manger, not just a stable. He makes holy every manger, every stable, every living and breathing person and place. Abilene, Kansas, La Entrada, Honduras, Bethlehem of Judea, Sarasota of Florida. God enters the world through one womb and inhabits the world in all places. So it makes great sense, doesn't it, when Jesus stops and pays a visit to his old friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and takes his seat inside their 200 square feet. Mary cannot seem to contain herself at the holy presence of the Bethlehem child sitting right there at the dinner table. She's paying attention to something that no one seems to be paying attention to, that, that God's anointed one is anointing this space the one for whom the angels sang, the one whom the shepherds visited. Jesus is making our home his home. She, she can't help herself but to break out the best perfume she's got and to fill the whole tiny house with it because Jesus has made his home here. 
perish the thought, Judas, that such extravagance is waste because the ground upon which you stand, Judas, is holy ground. And holy ground demands the extravagance of ourselves. For as Christ appeared in Bethlehem, as Christ appeared in Bethany, so Christ appears in the places we least expect. It's what so confused all those religious people when Jesus began appearing on the other side of the tracks, when he had lunch with the prostitutes and yucked it up with the tax collectors. He brought, he brought holiness on the road, made sacred every home, every manger, every dumpster, every bar and grill, every place where there is living and breathing. What grace God has given us not to preserve the place and space where Jesus once lived, for Jesus does not once live. Jesus lives once and for all. Jesus lives in all and through all. Jesus makes his home where there is living and breathing because Jesus makes the world his home. Everywhere we go, we enter the home of Jesus. Every space, sacred space, every square foot of ground, holy ground, because Jesus has made the world his home. Christ plays in 10,000 places, wrote the great priest, poet, Gerard Manley Hopkins. Christ appears in 10,000 places. And so when Jesus says, you know, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was sick, you visited me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was a stranger, you welcomed me. Such is Christ in 10,000 places. For Christ has made his home in the least of these and in the greatest of these, in the souls of presidents and in the souls of paupers, all living and breathing is holy. And what do we get to be? We get to be the bearers of the perfume. We get to be the spritzers of Chanel number five. For in the least of these, and in the greatest of these, there is the home of Christ, the home of Christ is in 10,000 places. And as we take our step in, no matter what we see, Christ is there. Christ is there. And we can't help ourselves but to break open the bottle and sprinkle the fragrance about to claim that every living and breathing place and person contains the sacred presence of God. It matters, you see, our walk in the world. It matters what we see when we invite people into our lives and they invite us into their lives, like Moses stumbling upon the burning bush and hears the voice, take off your shoes, Moses, because you're standing on holy ground. And when you and I make our way in the world at every turn, there is the sacred home of Jesus Christ plays in 10,000 places, and best we take off our shoes and spritz some lovely scent, so to say at least that I know I'm in the presence of Christ. For you, my friend, for you, my foe, are the presence of Christ to me. And I grace you with the sweetness of his grace. 
Such was the grace that came to me when long ago, while serving in an inner city ministry in a rough section of Washington, D.C., it was given to me to visit an old, angry, mentally ill, utterly alone senior citizen in a tenement apartment building. Her name, her real name, Dorothy Wellborn. She had managed through her wrath and mental illness to chase everybody away from her life. She was unable to leave her apartment and allow the squalor and the mess of her place to consume her. Any attempt to clean, to help, to cook, to get her to a doctor was met with wrath. She refused to use her air conditioning and kept her windows closed in the middle of the Washington, D.C. summer, most certainly as a form of self-punishment. She was the hardest person I have ever been given to visit. I begged my supervisor to reassign me, but she refused. She said, you need Dorothy. It took me hours to get up the energy to make an hour's visit, and the only thing she would allow me to do was to sit and listen to her spew her venom. So sit and listen I did, thinking my time a waste, no less wasteful than Judas' opinion of Mary's gift. But somewhere along in my visits, I saw something I had never seen before. I saw her do something with her hair. It seemed a gesture left over from an earlier day, a life long ago. She primped her hair like one would do when one held some shred of self-worth. She did this little thing with her hair, and in this little thing with her hair, I saw something I hadn't seen before. I saw a shred of self-worth. And it dawned on me that this is what God sees. This is what God sees. And so much more. God sees this living, breathing, beautiful being. No less holy than that baby in Bethlehem, that baby in Honduras. She too, as her name implied, had been well born. Life had done its number on her, to be sure. But she was still well born. She was holy. And Christ had made his home in her. And the only thing I had to do was to take off my shoes and sprinkle some perfume, claim this as holy ground, Christ home in 10,000 places. So in this day, this week, this month, this year, life We'll have lots of places and people in store for us. Mangers, stables, palaces, and penthouses, five-star, one-star, friend and foe, Democrat and Republican, food pantries, first-grade classrooms, dumpsters and beachfront houses, borderlines between nations. All sorts of places 
and all sorts of people. But nowhere will we go that Christ is not there. Nowhere will we go where we are not stepping on holy ground. For Christ has made his home in this world and has made this world his home.